His mother's name was Zabiah of Beersheba. And Jehoiash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Jehoiash said to the priest, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priest take each from his donor. Let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. But by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests had made no repairs on the house. Therefore King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said, Why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore, you take no more any money from your donors. Hand it over to the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should repair and that they should repair the house. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priest who guarded the threshold put in it all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And whenever they saw there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stone cutters, as well to buy timber and cord stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord, and for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But there is not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. And they did not ask an accounting from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out the workmen, for they dealt honestly. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. At that time, Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Haziel set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his father, the kings of Judah, had dedicated in his own sacred gifts and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent these to Haziel, king of Syria. Then Haziel went away from Jerusalem. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Selah. It was Josachar, the son of Shemaeth, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. If you've seen the movie Newsies, you'll know that it tells of newspaper salesmen in 1899 who go on strike because the newspaper companies start squeezing their profits. The salesmen, though, were not grown men. They were a bunch of orphans led by a young orphan named Jack Kelly. Jack's persona and toughness convince all the other newsies that they should go on strike and stay on strike until they can get higher pay. Everything seems to be going their way until Jack is caught, and since he is an orphan, they sentence him to four years in an orphan's home called The Refuge. Well, the refuge was a horrible place, and in order for the other boys to not be taken to the refuge, Jack strikes a deal with the newspaper executives that he will start selling papers again. The one who started the strike 
is the one who breaks the strike, and the other boys can't believe it. Jack started so well, but it appears as time went on, he changed. It's a familiar story. A revolutionary who comes in, maybe goes to Washington or some other place, to be changed. And then after a few years or decades, they seem more like the people they went to change than being the change agent themselves. It begins well, but it ends differently. And we have that type of story here in 2 Kings 12 with the reign of Jehoash. It begins well, but by his end, he's acting like the wicked kings before him and even the queen he replaced. This passage really has two big sections. First, in the first 16 verses, we see Jehoash's restoration of the temple. And then in the last five verses, his emptying of the temple. If you have a bulletin, you can see that on the outline. But just to remember the context, last week we saw in 2 Kings 11 that Jehoash was saved by his aunt because his grandmother tried to put everyone to death when his father had died. He was hidden, Jehoash was hidden in the temple for six years, and then when he was seven, Jehoiada the priest led a plot where he and the soldiers crowned Jehoash king and removed Athaliah, his grandmother. So from age seven, Jehoash then reigned for 40 years. And sometimes his name is Joash, but just to be consistent, I'm going to call him Jehoash throughout the sermon. And when he was young, he was guided, we read in verse 2, by Jehoiada, the priest, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, verse 2 is actually a little bit challenging to translate because there's really two options. You could translate it, Jehoash did right all his days because Jehoiada instructed him, and that would make us think, oh, from the day he started reigning to the day he died, Jehoash was a good king. But you can also read it and translate it. Jehoash did right all the days which Jehoiada instructed him. And that would give the impression he was faithful while he was listening to Jehoiada. And that's what we actually will see here and as we compare it with Second Chronicles 24. That Jehoash did well for a time, but then at Jehoiada's death he turned. But it starts out well, verse 3, he has the, he wants to remove, he wants to serve the Lord and he will eventually want to restore the temple. But there's one little snippet that is concerning and that is that he doesn't remove the high places. This is often a thorn in the side of the rulers of Judah and five kings, beginning with Solomon, will be faithful in many ways, but not that. Though King Hezekiah will eventually remove them. But here we have this extended section showing of Jehoash's godly repairing of the temple. And it begins by him telling the priests, take the offerings, and when they come in, use them for the restoration of the temple. There are three main offerings in Israel. First, when they took a census, every male over 20 was supposed to give half a shekel. Second, people could make special vows to God, and then they would give a certain amount. Third, there were free will offerings. And that's what it sounds like is going on here. And a free will offering is exactly what it sounds like. You are free of your will to give it or not to give it. And there was one special free will offering in Israel's history. When Israel was in the wilderness, Moses asked them to contribute freely to the tabernacle. And the people gave so generously that Moses had to say, stop, we have too much. 
And it seems like Jehoash is trying to draw the same thing out now. You hear Jehoash is kind of functioning like a new Moses, a new Solomon in the restoration of the temple. You know, Solomon's temple is now over a century old. And in between that and reading in 2 Chronicles 24-7, that Athaliah allowed her sons to steal things from the temple for Baal, the temple's probably in need of repair. And yet there's a problem we read of in verse 6. And that is that though he said, priest, I want you to do this quickly, they don't do it. For some time, they don't do the restoration of the temple. Now, we're not told how long that is. That could have been six weeks, six months, six years, even longer. All we know is that by the 23rd year of his reign, it hasn't been done. So why are they not acting quickly? Well, perhaps it's like our homes where nothing is new, where we have projects and go, oh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And it kind of turns into a day, a week, month, and then we go, man, we haven't done that for a couple of years. We need to do that project. <laughs> it could be what it is, or it could be that they drag, the priests dragged their heels because of the way Jehoash funded it. You know, when the tabernacle was built, it was only through free will offerings. When King David set up for the temple to be built by Solomon, it says that he paid for everything. But now Jehoash is seeming to ask for all the contributions of the temple, both the normal ones and free will offerings, to go to rebuilding it. And perhaps the priests are saying, uh -uh, you're not taking any of our funds, only the free will offerings. Well, we actually don't know. We're not told. But for whatever reason, they're delaying. And he calls them in. He says, we need to get this done. And then they agree that they will do it. So Jehoiada then takes a wooden chest, puts a hole in the top, and they put it there in the temple. And when offerings are cut, given, those who are guarding the temple will take it and put it in this chest. Now I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here. Because in the church I grew up in, we had a little box in the back with a hole in it. And I know a couple other people in our church have been in churches where in the back of the church there was a box with a hole in it. So what should we think of that? Is that what we are being told here? That we should have in the back of our sanctuary or room where we gather for worship a box well we should think of it like any other non-commanded but described event in the bible these verses aren't mandating that we use a box in the back nor are they saying we shouldn't it's not a bad thing but we know that because it's also not mandating that only those guarding it will take your offering and go put it in there nor is it mandating you have to put it on the right side of the room it's just explaining to us how they did it and we have to be careful because sometimes People will take a description of how certain people in the Bible tried to be faithful to God, and then they'll go, we have to do this. And sometimes that is true. But sometimes it's just describing, not prescribing. And we always have to be careful. And the danger is not that people do it. It could be a good thing to put in the box in the back. But when we then get self-righteous, well, we follow God's way of giving money. Well, that's not God's way. It's one way it was done in the Bible. You know, the clearest teaching in the Bible about giving is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And there it's not so much how you collect it, but that God wants us to give cheerfully, sacrificially, not from compulsion, but from a joyful heart. That's what he's concerned about. But off that rabbit trail and back to the main path, we read that that box would get full, then they would count it, and they'd give it out. They'd then give it to the foreman, who'd give it to the various tradesmen, and they were so honest in their dealings that they didn't have to keep an accounting. So what should we make of these verses? 
Well, like I said, I don't think it's giving us instructions on how we should gather funds, but I do think there are two important applications for us from these first 16 verses. And that is to see, first, that God delights in the care of His temple. Now you might think, okay, are we going to talk about paint, windows, or doors next? Except, I don't think that's how people in the New Testament should understand caring for the temple. Because when we think about the temple, we have to remember what is it representing. The temple is the place where God dwells. Now, of course, God wasn't confined there. Israel didn't think that. We see that by Solomon's prayer. But when Jesus came, what did he do? Well, John 1.14 says, Jesus came and he dwelt. The word there is literally tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is God's temple that came on earth. So what did he tell the Samaritan woman? One day you'll neither worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. We now don't need to go to any place. There's no Mecca for us, but we have to get to to worship God. Rather, the temple is Jesus, and we have become part of that temple. Let me read 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17. He writes, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, as Westerners, we hear you and you think, yes, I am God's temple. And that has some truth to it. But here in this passage, the you is actually plural. If Paul was texting me, he would have said, y'all are God's temple. He's saying all of us, the body of Christ, are God's temple. So if we are going to apply what's going on here to us as New Testament Christians, as people after Christ, we need to say we need to care for God's temple, meaning we need to care for the people in this church. We need to be concerned for their welfare. We need to be concerned for how they're doing. It's what Paul, or don't actually know, whoever wrote in Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stir one another up to good deeds. That we should be in our thoughts be wondering, how can I do other people in this group of believers that I've committed myself to, how can I do them good so they'll want to serve God more? That's caring for the temple. A very closely related but second application is the importance of spiritual mentoring. What you might call Titus 2 ministry. Why was Jehoash faithful for all those years? Well, it's because Jehoiada, the priest, was instructing him. He was guiding him. He was teaching him. And that is what Titus 2, if you read that later, verses 1 through 10, is encouraging. That the older, more mature, would instruct the younger in how to live in a way that honors Christ. Now, there are definitely times when we gather with our peers and have age-related events in the church But we should never do those to the neglect of being with older or younger members of the church. And yet there has to be some intentionality to this. I was listening to some guys talk about this week, and one of them mentioned Yogi Berra. not talking about the little cartoon guy. I'm talking about the famous New York Yankee who played 18 seasons of baseball, three of which he was the MVP, 15 of which his team went to the World Series, and 10 of which they won. So if you had this guy, you would think, this guy knows baseball. He, does, he is an expert. 
And so after he finished his career, one team said, we should get him to come be in our dugout. He will be a great asset to the new young players. And so they did. And you know what the new young players did? They went and had their picture taken with them. And then they went out on the field. And what did they ask him? Nothing. Oh, Yogi Bear, we couldn't go up to him. And what did Yogi Bear do? Nothing. I'm old. They don't want to know what I have to say. And so we can be surrounded by Yogi Bear spiritually, and yet we're too ashamed to ask, or we're not intentional enough to pour into people's life. It's not just being around people like osmosis on one level. It's being intentional. Now, on the other hand, it is being around. It's saying, look, it's not just coming and sitting here. Why don't you come over? Let's have dinner together. Let's be around each other. And we could give lots of examples that we'll dive a little bit into later. But the point of all this is that we need to be proactive, intentional, and willing to reach out to others, to do them spiritual good. And this really isn't that radical an idea. If any of you have ever planned a vacation, what do you do when you hear that someone else has already gone to that spot? You go, hey, can you tell me how it was? I'm thinking about going here. Was it worth it? Any good restaurants we should go to? Any roads? Any things we should stop on the way? Well, why do we do that? Well, because that person has already gone on the journey. We want to learn from the more experienced person. The same thing in our spiritual walk. If someone has already blazed the trail for us, learn from them. We don't need to all reblaze the same paths. And so in your Christian life, look around for more mature believers and try to invest in them. And if you're more mature, try to invest in those who are less. Talk, be honest. Ask those older in the faith, how have you dealt with this issue or that issue? How have you handled this? Now, you may not agree with everything they'll say, but having a Jehoiada who has blazed the trail first will make your walk with Christ much easier. Now to be clear, I'm not just talking about older in relation to age. If you're 14, you might have something to pass on to the nine-year-olds. And it might be that you're only in your mid-twenties, but someone came to faith when they're in their sixties. You might have more to share with them than they would have with you. The issue is not your age, but your spiritual maturity, and how can you bless others with that? And yet there's one problem, and that is sometimes our mentors, those who are counseling us, they pass away. And that happens with Jehoiada. And so Jehoash is now at a crisis point. What will he do? And sadly, we see that Jehoash begins listening to a different crowd. And he begins, as we'll see in the next section, emptying the temple. We see this in verses 17 through 21. Now, if you've been with us as we've gone through First and Second Kings, you'll immediately know something is amiss when you hear that Haziel, after going and attacking the Philistinian city Gath, is coming to attack Jerusalem. Because we know if Israel and Judah are being faithful to the Lord, that he will protect them. So the fact that they are now having to defend themselves in their own territory is a hint that something is going wrong. But yet even worse than that, we see in verse 18 that Jehoash, rather than praying to the Lord, rather than seeking for God to bring deliverance, he seeks to buy Haziel off. And it does work, but it only is showing has Jehoash's lack of trust in the Lord. You know, over and over in Israel's history, God protected them 
to show that he ultimately was the one who brought salvation. We see this in the life of Jonathan, King Saul's son, who told his servant in 1 Samuel 14, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Over and over we saw this, and Israel saw this in their history. That it wasn't their size, it wasn't their strategy, it wasn't their chariots that led to victory. Thus, how did they defeat Egypt? By God's mighty hand. How did they defeat the Midianites? With 300 men, torches, and pots. How did Goliath fall? By a little shepherd boy and a sling. And yet Jehoash doesn't trust the Lord, so he turns to his money to deliver him. Well, again, this is making us wonder, what is going on? And 2 Chronicles 24 gives us the rest of that story. I'm going to read 2 Chronicles 24, 17 through 22. There it says, Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to King Jehoash. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. And the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against Zechariah, and by the command of King Jehoash, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Jehoash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed him. And when Zechariah was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Thus, tragically, Jehoash does what Rehoboam did many years before, and that he stopped listening to godly counsel and started listening to ungodly counsel. He lost his Titus II mentor and didn't surround himself with other godly friends and counselors. And so his heart slowly drifted, drifted so far that he was willing even to kill the son of the one who secured his throne. Not just kill him, but kill him in the temple, the very place where he was crowned king. And then in Second Kings 20, we see that because of this, his servants even conspired against Jehoash and killed him. You know, the problem is, we don't like counselors like Zechariah. Zechariah, we read about in Second Chronicles 24, who come and tell us that we're not living the way God wants Jesus interacted with this when he was teaching and preaching. The religious leaders were often coming against him. And one time he gave extended warnings against them. And in Luke eleven forty five and following, it says, One of the lawyers answered him, Cheat you. In saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers. For you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you... Build the temple of the prophets, tombs of the prophets, whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. 
Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And so Jesus alludes to this very event about how God sends warnings to us. And yet often, we'd rather shoot the messenger. And so we should heed this very serious warning. Because it's interesting, Jehoash didn't stop worshiping. He didn't say, oh, I don't believe in Yahweh. He just did what many Israelites did. Well, I'm just going to worship God and other things. I'm going to serve God plus this thing also. And he, as he turned from the Lord, was unwilling to submit to God's command to serve him and him alone. So Jehoash began so well. How could he fall so far? How can we guard to not have such a fall? Well, we must take heed as we read earlier in Hebrews 3. And I'd like to end there. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll especially focus on verses 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter 3. I'll read verse 12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You know, the author is giving a big warning. He's saying, watch out. Take care that you don't begin to have an unbelieving heart. And this unbelief is residing in the heart. And it manifests itself in our thoughts, emotions, and actions. You know, as people, we can confess the right doctrine with our mind, but not believe it in our hearts. We can say, oh yeah, God's in control. But our almost suffocating anxiety reveals that our heart doesn't believe that. We can say, Jesus is all I need. He's everything. And yet our depression over not having a boyfriend or thinking we're unattractive or unathletic reveals that we actually think we need something else. See, biblical faith is not just saying God exists. The demons believe that. Biblical faith sees all the other options in life and finds joy in Christ and in God alone. Thus, the fight for faith is not to fight atheism in your heart. It's rather to fight the fight that God is true, that His Word is sufficient, that He is all we need. And yet the problem is that most Christians... Just don't take these warnings like the one in Hebrews 3 very seriously. We pay attention to them the way we pay attention to the flight attendants as they begin talking about the emergency exits and what to do in case of emergency. Oh yeah, that's probably never going to happen. Doesn't affect me. And yet, here he's being serious. Notice verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 3 where he writes, For we have come to share in Christ if, Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The if is implying there are things that need to happen. And I think the danger is sometimes we allow good biblical teaching to override 
other good biblical teaching. You know, the Bible teaches that once we're saved, we are always saved. That is true. And we should take great comfort in that truth, that God keeps us secure in His hand. Yet we then often dismiss the other parts of the Bible that explain how God keeps us saved. You know, God keeps us safe by continuing to work faith in us. He preserves us by continuing to work in us faith and trust in Him. Thus, as 1 John says, sometimes people go out from the church because they show they were never really of the church. You, know, you can be present, you can know the right stuff, but if you don't persevere in the faith, you should be concerned if you ever had genuine faith in the first place. It is true, once saved, always saved. But we should add, if you were truly saved. Thus, we must persevere in fighting for faith in Christ and putting sin to death. For as it says here, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, Jesus promised he will keep us. And the way he keeps us is in the persevering of us in our faith. You know, 1 Peter 1 is one of my favorite passages. And there in chapter in verse 4, Peter is telling us of the wonderful inheritance we're going to have. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And then he adds in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's means of persevering you is by continuing to give you faith. Only Christians often hear the first part. God's going to preserve me. It's as though you go on a wonderful but dangerous hike and you hire a guide because you know many people die on this trail. And so you go because you want to see the beautiful thing and you get to the dangerous part and the guide says, okay, we have all gotten here and I want you to really pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. If you walk exactly where I do and if you listen to what I say, you're going to get there and we're going to have a great time. But you have to do what I tell you. And then someone says, hey, he said we're going to get there safely. And they go running off. You go, what the, that's actually not everything he said. He did say we'd be there. But if we listen to what he said. So yes, Christ promises you will be secure. And he also said, by you continuing to trust. And so what should you do when you begin to see sin? You should confess. You should turn, you should flee, and that really needs to the next thing, verse 13, right in the middle of those 12 and 14. But exhort one another every day, Hebrews 3.13, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You notice it didn't say, pastors, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, make sure you're exhorting people, which we should do. Rather, it's saying every one of us should be caring for one another. Every Christian is called to the ministry. Maybe not to paid ministry. Maybe not to ministry with a title. But you're called to minister to whatever Christians God has put in your life. As well, when can we stop? Well, when today is no longer called today. At 11.59 and 59 seconds, it's going to be today. At midnight, it will be today. Because we will be in tomorrow, which will be today. Which we could say a lot of things about that, but it makes sense, kind of. <laughs> Always, we need to be exhorting people to faith in Christ. 
So, to be specific, we can't stop. Oh, my children have been baptized. They're good. Oh, he's a pastor. He's an elder. We don't need to really worry about them. They could never fall into sin. Nope. Oh, they've been a Christian for 60 years. They're good. Every day, we need to be regularly involved in each other's lives, exhorting and encouraging them. And yet, the problem is, many of us by temperament and all of us by culture don't like this. We like being individuals. We like keeping things to ourselves. I read a really insightful essay a couple weeks ago by Brett and Kate McKay, and they were discussing how we as a society think, oh, we're so liberated, we're so free from all of the shackles of those Puritans and those societies in the past. And then they write, at the end of their article, as a culture, we can look at the nakedness of thousands of strangers online, and yet we would be embarrassed to get undressed in a public locker room. We can hook up with anyone without shame, and yet we struggle to admit to and express the yearning for a lasting relationship. We can talk in the abstract about everything that was once taboo, and yet we find it difficult to share anything from the heart. While we feel quite liberated in every form of physical and emotional intimacy, we can be really terribly restrained. While we pride ourselves in our permissiveness, we may go down as one of the history's most prudish societies, a people who were not only bashful about their bodies, but also shyly concealed their souls. So how do we do what comes so unnatural? Well, let me share with you the code, C-O-D-E. First, you have to be committed. So that was an acronym if you didn't catch that. You have to be committed. And what am I saying got to be committed to? I don't mean committed necessarily to an event, though that is good. It's good to have habits. Habits lead us to do good things. But be committed to the people. We mentioned this earlier. We are called to be committed to each other. You know, if you become a member here, you take a church covenant where we promise that we are going to look out for one another, that we're going to go hand in hand so that we might exalt God, that we might evangelize this world, that we might exhort each other. We've made those commitments because that's what God's word calls us to, that we should be living a committed lifestyle to each other. Second, oh, you need to be open. Now, I'm blessed. Keith and I get a meet almost every week. We talk about things in the church, what's going on, people, how we can pray for them. And we also talk about what's going on in our lives. And we get to share and be open and say what's going on. And yet all of this means we have to take an interest in others. Do you want to know what's going on? Do you ever ask other people questions or do they always have to ask you? Do you walk up and say, how are you doing? And actually mean it. Are you open with yourself? If they ask, are you willing to share? Now this takes trust. That someone is not then going to spill all of your secrets. And yet we should be the people who are most trustworthy. Because we know the depths of our own heart. So no one should ever be able to say something to us that we go, Oh, that's, that's too bizarre. Because we know the bizarre and evilly twisted thoughts in our hearts. So we can go, well, maybe I've never dealt with that, but I know the things I deal with. So I can hear what you're saying and I can walk alongside you. So we need to be committed. We need to be open and we need to be 
deliberate. I mean, the reality is, none of us can be close friends with everyone in here. Nor would it be healthy for that to happen. But we should deliberately pursue a couple people at least. And yet this won't happen if we don't deliberately set aside time and make an effort. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying after the service, go find someone and spill your guts of everything that you've ever said and done or said, so what's your darkest sin struggle? That's not a very healthy way to do this. But you could invite them over. Say, let's go somewhere after church. Build relationships. And then, as you enjoy talking about politics, sports, all the things that we enjoy, also say, how are you really doing? It's so easy when we come to church to put on a mask. How are things with your marriage? How are things not being married? How are things in your life? Now, let's just be clear. You don't have to start a Bible study. You don't need to go, oh man, they're going to say something. I'm not going to know how to answer. Well, then that would be about me with every time I meet with y'all. I don't know how to answer everyone's questions, but I know the one who does. And so I can come alongside and say, let's pray about that. And we can maybe read a book together. Or I can point you to some good resources. But we are being committed to each other because we know the one who is real life and hope. And we want to be pursuing him and encouraging others in that. So we need to be committed. We need to be open. We need to be deliberate. And lastly, you have to see this is essential. Now, when you know something is essential to your life, you'll go to all kinds of extreme things to do it. No one wants a root canal. But the pain is so bad, they will take it. No one wants to amputate a limb. But you know what? Sometimes it's life for that limb. So they're willing to have it taken off. You know, we need to realize that we need other people. Christian friends are an essential part of the Christian life, not a bonus, not a cherry on top of your Christian life. God tells us we need other believers in our life. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not saying we all need to be extroverts. You you can be an introvert and care about people. The issue is not what style of temperament do you have. You know, plenty of extroverts are extroverts because they don't want to go any deeper and they keep it, talk to everyone. That's not true of all extroverts and it's not true of all introverts that they're not deep. The issue is not your temperament, but are you in love reaching out to others? Are you in love being willing to be open with others? And we don't have to look just back to 2 Kings chapter 12. We can go back to last year and read of a wonderful man, it seemed, Ravi Zacharias. Faithful for many years, everyone held up as a model of humility and Christ-likeness until many things came out. So what should we do? Well, we should take care, brothers, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. So we should exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. For if we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Oh Lord, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Oh Lord, would you take our hearts? Would you seal them for you, for your courts above? Oh Lord, we need you. We ask that you would help us not just to 
fight alone, but that we would link arms with other brothers and sisters. May we not think that we are above and beyond this, but may we realize the own temptations of our heart and be honest and find the joy and fellowship in one another in turning each other to you and away from sin. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.